Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Have you heard about Move On? If you're in America, you probably have. What about Get Up? If you're Australian, it's probably a name you know. How about 38 Degrees in the United Kingdom or Action Station in New Zealand or Campact in Germany? You might not be aware, but these national digital advocacy movements operate in a lot of countries across the global north and the global south, and they are globally networked. What is it that sets them apart from other change-making organisations? Today's Changemaker Chat is with Nina Hall. Nina is a passionate changemaker who took her skills to the academic world, undertaking a five-year study of these movements. She's written a book called Transnational Advocacy in the Digital Era with Oxford University Press, and today she shares what she found. We hear the story of how these different networks formed and how they joined together to create the open network. She talks about their distinctive features, their rapid response capacity and their ability to fund themselves as well as some of the things that make them different in different countries. We crack open an important debate inside the network between being member-driven and stewarding member interest, such as on issues like refugee rights. And just a quick disclosure, I have a personal interest in this work as I co-founded one of these groups, Get Up in Australia. If you're on an email list of one of these organisations, take a listen and find out more about the story behind the emails. So. Let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. Changemakers also produces episodes that feature stories about social change campaigns. Changemakers is supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. You can find out more about Changemakers on our website, where you can also sign up to our email list. It's changemakerspodcast.org. Hi, Nina. Welcome to Changemakers. Wonderful to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Amanda. Oh, thank you. And we are going to have such a great chat here today. Uh, but to start the conversation, I'm wondering if you could share with us all what kind of change maker are you? Yeah, well, I grew up in Windy Wellington, so a New Zealander, and was always curious about the world, both in terms of wanting to change issues around environment, global justice issues, humanitarian issues. And I guess my approach was two ways. One, to get involved. So from a very young age, I remember going along in Wellington to some of the anti-nuclear testing in the Pacific protests that were happening um, around uh, the mid-90s, really, with the French testing in Mururoa. I still remember waving a flag. I think it might have even had my first or only 10 minutes of fame, having a little photo in the local news. (laughs) 
as a like 10 year old. And then going through to university, I was also involved in the Greens on Campus, which was an environmental group, which was pushing, as the name suggests, for more action on things like climate change. We did some fun protests, actually. We did one where we stood outside the mayor of Auckland's office and dressed up in what Kiwis call togs, swimming cozies. And (laughs) yeah, basically said Auckland's going to be underwater. So we should act now. This was a reasonable amount, you know, going back 20 odd years ago now. You're an early adopter. You're an early adopter of social movements and possibly of other things too. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And parallel to that, I always had an academic interest, which is, I guess, what we'll be talking about more. So I studied international relations at University of Auckland and just got really interested in how people can make change. And actually, my master's thesis was on the women's movement in East Timor. And I went to Timor and studied how the women's movement had pushed for gender equality post-independence. And it was fascinating. It was a fascinating time because there were so many opportunities and Timor ended up having a very high proportion of women in parliament. They had one of the highest in the region, thanks to a very active women's movement, which was the focus of of my master's thesis. Oh, wow. So, I mean... What I'm hearing in your background is is a sort of a passion and interest in activism in many forms, especially and and an international edge to that activism, plus an academic interest in international relations. And and we know that you've brought that together in this sort of groundbreaking book that you've uh, put out with Oxford University Press called Transnational Advocacy in the Digital Era. And we're going to talk about your findings uh, about these digital advocacy movements that exist across the world. That's going to be the substance of this podcast. But before we get to that, I want to ask you, do you have a sense of what motivated you to get involved in all this social justice stuff in the first place? Like, why do you think that it was um, issues of justice and climate and um, nuclear testing? Like, what what drove you into that space in the first place? It's hard to pinpoint an exact moment in my child mind. I think I was just always, I have a level of curiosity about what was happening in the world, which I think is important because New Zealand, you know, as you'll appreciate, it's pretty far away and the world can feel like a far away place that kind of doesn't really matter. You can just hold up any apocalyptic, you know, moment and sit in New Zealand on the beach or in the mountains. But I was always curious. So I think that's one thing that I had this interest in, the rest of the world and felt very connected from quite a young age and actually ended up living for a year in Sicily as a 17 year old. Oh, wow. And that okay. moment was quite pivotal for me. It was the moment um, when there were already migrants arriving in Sicily from Northern Africa, but there was just a little side panel in the news. You know, when you open a newspaper and there's like the like three line, here's something happening. It was kind of that level of news. And that at the time where I was living in Sicily really got me interested in issues around migration and displacement. And obviously the issue itself evolved a lot from being a little sidebar panel to being one of the front news stories that we've seen since, you know, the last 10 odd years in in Europe specifically. But yeah, I guess I've just, it's, it's always been something, it's probably also from my family, like in my family at home, we'd be sitting around dinner table having conversations about these, these sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah. And then... So you've taken this these passions, this dual sort of combined interest, this sort of intellectual interest in intellectual capacity that brings you and then applied that to the question of movements. Tell us, if you could tell us how you ended up becoming interested in looking at these digital movements that we're talking about. For people who don't know, they're in your country probably. It's get up, it's move on, it's 38 degrees, it's action station, you know, all around the place are these different 
kinds of movements. How did you encounter them, find out about them, and then decide to write the book about how they work? So I was living in Berlin at the time, and I just finished a bunch of research on the UN. I'd been writing for my PhD on how UN humanitarian and development organizations are dealing with climate change, right? The UNHCR debates about climate displacement. And while I'd learned a lot, it'd been super interesting. The UN is a bureaucracy that moves slowly, right? This is be <laughs> its strength and its weakness. And it's very cumbersome. And that was part of the interest in studying it. But I'd been studying UN institutions for over five years and I was hungry for something new. And actually through a friend of a friend, May Miller Dawkins, who's an Australian who'd been very involved in change, change makers in both the Australian context and then had had worked in, and lived in the US. She happened to be in Berlin and we were chatting, brainstorming ideas for collabor- collaborations. And she said, oh, I'm aware that this group of organizations are meeting next week in Berlin. And there's a group from New Zealand called Action Station. There's groups from Sweden called WIFTET. There's a group from Germany called Campact and Move On. I was like, I've never heard of these groups. Like I'd literally <laughs> never heard of any of them partly because the academic debates I was situated in in international relations just didn't know them. And in fact, Mm -hmm. one of the big projects of my book is to introduce scholars of international relations to groups that for some people are household names. Yeah. Um, So really that was the starting point. And I went along and met Ben Branzell, who, as I'll explain, founded this network of nationally based digital advocacy organizations. So Get Up, Move On, 38 Degrees, Whiftet, Action Station, were all meeting to share tactics and strategies and lessons learned and failures. And they sat in Berlin for a week and just had lots of conversations. And I went along, they were having dinner. And remember still today, walking down the streets of Kreuzberg, chatting to Ben and being like, hey, can I like learn more about what you're doing? And can I study you? And that obviously started a conversation. It wasn't an immediately yes, because Ben didn't know who I was, but over several months um, of of talking and also me learning and thinking about what my value add to the conversations they were having was going to be. And that was always important too. Yeah. So tell us, I mean, it's, yeah, because it's one thing to meet an interesting bunch of distinctive and unusual people in a German city. Don't get me wrong, that sounds cool. But it's another thing to stick at a project like that for for five years and decide that it's going to be such an important piece of work for you. I mean, we're going to talk extensively about what, what was important, but what do you think kept you in or made, made it an import, something you wanted to spend such a lot of time looking at? I think part of it was the activists involved in this network, while I use the term digital, they're so engaged as humans in making connections with other people. And I think that's a really important element that people from Sweden, Poland, Romania, from such different countries had come together and felt like they could learn from each other. And as an academic, there was a a sense for me of curiosity, like how on earth has this network come into being? And how have such similar organizations taken off in countries as different as Israel, South Africa, Sweden, UK, Poland. Like I just, there were so many curious questions to unpack that the intellectual in me was very curious. And the the human social activist in me found it amazing to spend, you know, I'd go along to summits for a week on end with people who were asking themselves, how do we change the world and reflecting on it constantly and not afraid of trialing and failing. And I think this is an important element that will come to in the model where one of the, for me, uniqueness is this sort of 
almost fast failure. Let's, let's give something a go. Let's try a campaign. If it doesn't work, let's go to the next thing. Let's try a different tactic, a different strategy. And that's quite different from the ways other NGOs operate. So there was a, there was a desire to try and reflect with these activists on the strengths and limits. And there had been not very much written, certainly nothing at the international level about this project of forming this network. So there was lots to do. But it also, it strikes me as like, if you could look around the world and try and find the opposite of the United Nations, <laughs> I think you might've found it in, in, in this network and that they do you know, UN goes slow in order to try not fail, whereas this this network goes is happy to fail but moves fast in doing so. Exactly. And for me, that freshness, and it was like studying the new kids on the block, although we can debate whether or not they're still the new kids <laughs> on the block, but at the time, that's what mm. it certainly felt like to me in 2015. Awesome, awesome. So we're not going to presume that, I mean, like you, there might be people who are listening to this podcast going, who are these digital movements? You know, what, what, what are we talking about here? Let's start at the beginning, if, if you don't mind. And if you can just outline the story that you document in the book, which is the story of this global network and how, how, it, how it began, you know, starting in the States, but then spreading around the world, the, the, the role of this sort of heroic character called Ben Brenzel, which um, obviously is really important to the development of this open network that you describe in the, in the book. Yeah, for sure. So the book is partly about charting the formation of a network of what I call nationally focused digital advocacy organizations. And the first organization to be set up was Move On in the US in 1998. And it was actually set up by two software developers, Wes Boyd and Joan Blades. And they developed an online petition to encourage the US Congress at the time to move on from all the debates about Bill Clinton um, and censure and everything associated with the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Now, what's important about Move On was not necessarily that it had an online petition, but that it grabbed and collected all of those people who signed the petition and used those email addresses for subsequent campaigns. So it was building up its power by collecting emails and campaigning across multiple issues. It wasn't a single issue. We just care about Bill Clinton. And the other point that is really important is that it did things offline as well as online. And so Move On over time became a very pivotal part of the anti-Iraq war protests under uh, opposing Bush's, Bush's war in Iraq. And as other colleagues, uh, scholars like David Karp have written about, it had a tremendous impact on US political advocacy because it pioneered this new form of multi-issue, so switching between different issues, member-driven, so they collected members through petitions and then surveyed them and did analytic activism, testing different campaigns, testing different subject lines to figure out what campaigns their members backed. And it also relied on its members for funding. And members didn't necessarily see themselves as members in the same way like Greenpeace or Oxfam members might, but they would be people who might regularly give donations. Now, I'm explaining this model in depth because other activists around the world saw this and thought, wow, this is fascinating. Maybe we can do a similar thing in our own respective countries. And so uh, in Australia, as Amanda, you know very well, part of that story, we had Jeremy Hymans and David Madden establishing GetUp in 2005. And they'd worked at Move On. They'd seen the power of it and thought, let's do something similar here. In Germany, 
uh, a couple, a PhD student was also watching the, the, the strength of move on during the anti-Iraq war protests and thought, I want to do something similar. He actually went to the US, this is Felix Kolb, and said to move on, will you give me the German email uh, list, the, the German people on move on's list? Move on didn't know these people at the time and said, no, we, we won't. So move on. So they actually wanted to call themselves, you know, move on Germany, essentially. We had that discussion in Australia as well about, about name. Yeah, for a while, David, Jeremy, and I would call the project "Move on Australia," but we always knew that we would never call it <laughs> "Move on Australia" to anyone but ourselves because it guess, would never work. But I guess what that points to is that that model wasn't known. So, in order for yourselves mm. to say, "What are we doing? We're creating. We're emulating, right? What we've yeah. seen in the US and calling it." digitally distributed, member-driven, nimble, rapid response advocacy is quite cumbersome, you know. It's, it's a bit true. of a long and we way. Didn't, we didn't have the eight-step model or five attributes that have been neatly created in the years since, thank goodness. Yeah, it was. It, but it was definitely, you're right, there was a, a sense that what, what, what Move On is doing is something that is missing and is something that's useful. And it's so fascinating hearing that from you because I think what activists around the world who were in progressive circles, whether they be in migrants' rights or environment, had the same thought. So these are activists mm. in the book charts, this from Ireland to Israel to Colombia to Nepal to Italy to Sweden. And each story is the book charts is slightly different. Sometimes they reach out to a neighbor organization. So the Polish group, Aksha Demokratia, Veronica, who started that group, reached out to the German group because she saw Kempak and thought, what are you doing? The New Zealand group. Megan Saloli reached out to Get Up once they knew Get yeah. Up and said, can you guys help us out understand what you're doing? And she went and spent time there. The Irish group reached out to the British group. So there's this amazing personal connections and network that evolves that enables activists in many different countries to emulate it. And in some places, there was a attempt to basically by Ben Branzell, who helped found the network that brought all these activists together to go out and try and sort of seed an organization. So in France, he went and tried to find somebody who might lead this organization. Similarly in Israel, uh, sorry, in Austria and in Israel, he did similar studying the, the, the progressive uh, landscape, figuring out if there was space and desire for it, and then trying to find the right people to set up an organization, always locals. So it's always, you know, working with Austrians in Austria, Israelis in Israel. And so it's a fascinating, for me, it was a fascinating case of I talked with lots of the founders about their own stories, why it was that they thought that this model had something to offer. Oh, no. And what is powerful about your research is that I think that if you're in a national context, you see a single organization. So I'm sitting in Australia, I see the work of GetUp, and I might know that there are other other similar organizations in other countries, but but I don't see that. What you document in the book are the lessons of you know, aggregation of this kind of practice across the world and what it represents in terms of a, a way of engaging in change that's not just by accident, but but is much much more much more conscious. What I'd love you to do is talk us through some of the conscious strategy that sits behind this digital approach to. Uh, people power, this sort of digital mobilizing strategy that you, that you document through the, all these different organizations. Tell us a little bit about what their approach is. What is it that makes, you know, the move on, initially the move on equivalents 
now this open network? What makes these organizations distinct? Sure. And you already gave a little hint earlier on when you mentioned the eightfold path. And this is what Ben Branzell, as somebody who'd worked at Move, at Move On and then helped set up Avars and helped set up 38 Degrees in the UK and had had been exposed to GetUp's work as well, he realized quite early on that he needed to have a way of explaining this model and how it was distinct from the Oxfams, the Greenpeaces, the Amnesty Internationals of the world. So he came up with something called the Eightfold Path. And this is progressive, people power change, member-led, multi-issue, nimble, full-spectrum campaigning, independent and digital. And after looking and talking with him, I evolved my own conception of this because it felt that some of those elements, I mean, they all share progressive values, you know, many organizations share progressive values, but there were some really important components that, to me at least, as a as somebody who studies advocacy, um, were quite distinct. And so I, in the book I chart, the first one is that many groups like GetUp engage in electoral campaigning. This will be very familiar to GetUp, uh, people who are familiar with GetUp or move on in the U.S., and what's important here is they can often engage in electoral campaigning precisely because they're not registered as charities. In most countries, if you're a charity, you get generous tax benefits, but you can't do political activities. So for instance, Oxfam or Amnesty, while they might push human rights or development causes during an electoral campaign, they can't push for specific candidates or try and oust conservatives. And what we see which I found fascinating and was certainly new to me as a, an international relations scholar, that, the, that, that groups like Get Up, Move On, Lead Now in Canada were identifying swing seats, strategically figuring out who were the key voters that they needed to shift, going out door knocking, canvassing, phone calling, putting up billboards, relatively conventional ca- tactics, but doing it with a background in digital campaigning so that you could strategically try and shift. And often having some influence. So that was one key element that's very different. And it's important because it's holding leaders to account when it matters most. The other three elements go together and that's that they're rapid response. So you can quickly scale up campaigns on the internet in a matter of hours. You're multi-issue. So you're switching between different issues. Unlike groups like Amnesty that stick to human rights, they're not going to start a campaign on Yemen one day and then the next day drop it and do another campaign. Groups like Get Up, Move On, 38 Degrees sometimes do. They might start a campaign and then drop it if there's not sufficient member interest. So that's the third, uh, member-driven, multi-issue rapid response. And in the book, I, I sort of set out how that offers these groups an ability to to really listen in to where uh, there's what Ben Branzell calls crisis moments where there's a crisis, but also opportunity to campaign. And it could be a referendum like on marriage equality in Australia or uh, abortion in in Ireland. It could be a big climate summit that's upcoming. It could be the so-called refugee crisis. These moments where there's high political salience for something and you're trying to shift a big proportion of people rather than just talking to already the converted who are already caring about refugee issues or human rights issues. It's about mobilizing en masse. And those elements are what enable them to do that. 
And I mean, look, one of the things that strikes me, it sits underneath your analysis and it's through the book. It's about being member driven and being rapid response is anyone who's ever received an email from any of these organizations would be familiar that these organizations are able to use these enormous email lists to, 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 to finance the organization through crowdsourcing, through small, small uh, donations, which provide which pr- means that they the charitable status is not as important because they have a, a financial basis and then and they also are able to independently fund themselves. How significant do you think that the sort of independent business model capacity is for for these kinds of organizations? Like what role do you think that plays about their distinctiveness as well? I think it's crucial and actually the piece that I'm working on now is making that argument even elaborating it to say that funding models matter for what advocacy organizations can do. Because obviously, if you're government funded, you're going to be a bit more often compromised in the positions you take. There's research out there that suggests you're more likely to take insider tactics, so lobbying rather than outsider. And being member driven means that your accountability is back to those members. And I think what's really interesting here is that the members are predominantly domestically based. So if you're GetUp in Australia, your members are Australian. If you're Campact in Germany, your members are German. And you're campaigning with them, through them, they are taking the action. So you're not what a lot of NGOs are struggling with is these accountability dilemmas where you may be getting funding from individuals like Amnesty, but those individual members are in the global north and you may be conducting campaigns in the global south. So there's a real dilemma of, well, who are we speaking on behalf of? Who's driving the priorities? Whereas one thing I think that's relatively unique within the open network, this network of digital advocacy organizations, is by and large, people are deciding and funding the campaigns that they see as important for them, right? So if you're sitting in Germany and there's a big debate about trade politics and you then fund Campact, you're saying, we want this to be a priority for the organization. And I should note the funding isn't always earmarked. So when people are asked to give funds, they may give regular monthly donations to the organization and then the organization can choose where to put them. Or they they sometimes may give them for a particular campaign. But having member funding means that you have, to a certain extent, more flexibility. You're not driven by government or big foundation priorities. And it helps the rapid response. Like if you've got, we're going to put a billboard on somewhere really important in two days time if we can raise $50,000 are you in? Like there's something so attractive about knowing if I put money in, it has a meaningful output immediately, as opposed to give us $10 a month forever and the the organization will exist, you know, which are traditional sort of international NGO model. Like this, the sort of the way in which the the ask is put put out there is not only different, but I think it's part of the success. I certainly for the certainly in the early years of, of Get Up, that was so one of the thrills was people's sense of I can put my money in and it's not just randomly going into a big pot of money, but it's making that thing that I really care about happen this week. That's right. And I think a lot of the actions that these groups take are quite concrete. You know, it might be sign a petition or fundraise for yeah, a billboard or for a particular video campaign that we want to run. And so people have a sense of, okay, I have to give now in two days time, there's going to be this decision. There's a sense of urgency. There's a sense of, here's how a theory of change, my money or my action is going to contribute to this outcome. And I think that's really important for the organizations because that's how their members keep getting engaged. Yep, yep, yep. So I completely hear you when you say that obviously there is a model, the the eight-step 
model or as you put it, sort of five key attributes that make this this network distinctive and, and mean that, you know, there are similarities between all, all of these organisations around the world. But I'm also wondering whether you might draw out what what makes them different? Like, I know that there are there are differences given context, right? Like the the political, social, economic, cultural context of New Zealand is different to Germany, is different to wherever. How how, how does this model even applied with its you know quite a consistent and and specific understanding? How does it look different in different places? Do you want to give us a couple of examples of of innovations or changes that have come about because of context? Sure. So one of the fun things as a political scientist is always thinking what, why and when uh, are there, is there variation and is it something systematic that we can try and explain because that's what we're in the, in the business of doing. And getting to know, first of all, the distinctive model of being sort of multi-issue uh, member-driven rapid response, all of the organizations share that, but there's different variation in, in, in a couple of elements. The first is, I'll come back to the funding. So most of the established organizations do get 80, 90, between even 95 and 100% member funding. When you're new as an organization, you often, many of them had to rely on grant funding. So there's a over time variation in how they, they, they need grant funding before they get a big email list. In the global south, the organizational model hasn't taken off as strongly. And I think this is important to note, most of the examples that are active ongoing organizations today are in the global north if we you know include Australia and New Zealand. South Africa's Amandla Mobi is an exception and what's interesting there is that they've targeted particularly black working class women. They're the people they want on their list. They're the people they want to be campaigning with. But one of the ramifications of that has been that they it's harder to fundraise off that constituency. So they've had to rely more on grant funding. So they have a slightly different funding model. And I think that's that's an interesting thing to, to reflect upon how to do set up these organizations in different contexts. I'd also note that they've been very, very savvy and at the forefront of some of the WhatsApp and text-based campaigning because email doesn't work as well with that constituency. A second but also I like that, but just, just to mention that, like the platforms that are used in different countries to do this work varies. For sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. And over time as well, like email was obviously very, very important in the 90s and 2000s and still is. It's still seen as one of the most stable forms of ways of communicating. But uh, social media and obviously different social media platforms. When I started Facebook, you know, was key. Now more and more groups experimenting with, say, Instagram or TikTok. I'd add the other second dimension that was very different across the countries and has evolved over time is to what extent they partner with other NGOs in their domestic domestic context. So when 38 Degrees came into being, move on, and you would have a better insight into get up. But the sorts of things I heard from other NGOs in domestic context was that open organizations will swoop in, you know, blast out an email, get everyone organized in the last two days of a campaign, and then just fade into the distance and often claim to their members a degree of success. Oh, look, we got the Paris Agreement. Avaz once claimed that, you know, we, you, your actions as members (laughs) helped get the Paris Agreement. And, and that language of claiming a victory when often, as we know, there are so many different organizations involved and, and the open orgs, the, the groups I study are generally not very good agenda setters. Their role is not to publicly do the public education to tell people that this is an issue, you know, you should care about 
refugees in Manus or Nauru or you should care about these trade agreements. Their, their role is like the cavalry, mass mobilizations. But one of the, the limits, as I've, I've kind of tried to highlight, is that if you just do that out on your own, you may be stepping, A, on other people's toes, so there's a diplomatic, but you may also say uh, the wrong thing, as in you may ask your members to take an action that maybe isn't the most useful at that time because you're not an expert. And what's evolved over time is that some of the organizations have become uh, very good at partnering with more issue-specific NGOs. So to give you a concrete example, in New Zealand, there was a campaign to double the New Zealand refugee quota, which by the way, is very low, may surprise you, lower than the Australian per capita refugee quota. And yeah, and so, but this person, Murdoch Stevens, when he started the campaign, it was just him basically. So he's just one lone person. He had all of the knowledge about what needed to happen. He had a very clear strategy, but he didn't have a massive email list. So he went to Action Station and Action Station helped run the petition and they gave the infrastructure to an issue-based campaign and worked very well with him. And Action Station, being in a small democracy where it's difficult in the progressive sector if you step on people's toes because you're always going to see them down at the pub. So you have to find ways to work collaboratively. And you see that also in the way that De Gerda Zak in the Netherlands set up, also a relatively small democracy. They too were very conscious that they wanted to provide a platform for other progressive groups. They weren't out there to kind of edge others out. It wasn't a competitive dynamic that they wanted to set up a collaborative. And I would note that a number of the organizations, including probably 38 Degrees most recently, are shifting towards that model of being more attentive to where their value add is within the broader sector. I think that that's really interesting that there has been a shift. Because look, you know, I think GetUp's beautiful. I'm biased. People, I was part of that group that helped set them up. But we were very much criticised for being the people who came in and took the credit at the end and then sent out an email at the early stages. And I think the organisation really did shift in the same way that you've described. It plays a, a, There's a lot more collaborative work that goes on in the organisation where, um, where it has been able to, not just because it needs to, which I think the size of a democracy makes. I think it's really interesting how geography and the, the sort of political scale makes a difference to how these organisations operate but also to, to fill gaps, you know, the sort of the research expertise, like just having a big email list is not the only thing you need to do. There are different capacities that are required to be successful in making change and being able to collaborate across different forms of people power, theories of change is actually a great strength. And it's it, like, it's exciting to see that to, to develop. I think it's a more mature, you know, it's a sort of maturation of strategy in a way. Yeah, exactly. So... You talk about in the book that there are debates. So the organisations are similar. There are some differences because of place, but there's a lot of homogeneity in terms of their approach. But there are differences that you document in the book where there are different approaches, debates about how this eight-step model, about how the digital strategy should be built. The one that I was very interested in was the role to which these organisations are member-driven, which, you know, how many people want to work on this issue will work on that issue or play a stewardship model where they seek to play a role in stewarding and or leading their members on a particular issue, membership driven or stewardship. Can you explain what that means um, in the first instance for, for us to sort of, so we can understand what the debate looks like? Sure. So 
when I came to the network and to some of their summits, they were having this internal conversation themselves, reflecting on the strengths and weaknesses of the model. So in a way, I'm, I'm kind of being a mirror back to those, to those conversations. And what was coming up, and this was particularly after, I should note, the Brexit referendum and Trump's election, that the member-driven model may not always be best suited to progressive change. And to give you a specific example of this, 38 Degrees in the UK polled its members, so surveyed them and said, in uh, the Brexit referendum, should 38 Degrees campaign for or against Brexit? Now, this is a common thing to do in these organizations. This isn't unusual. They often say, you know, what, you, what is your position on this? What should we do as an organization? What they found is no clear, overwhelming majority for one to either leave or stay in the EU for the UK. It's like, it's, it's like <laughs> it, it, as was in real life, sadly. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so what did the organization do? Being member-driven, it said, okay, we don't have a mandate as an organization to campaign for the UK to stay in the EU, even though most of its staff, I'd say probably 99.9% of them, that's what they would have voted for and that's what they would have wanted. And so what did they do? They said, we'll campaign as a neutral information kind of platform to give information to both sides of the debate. And then after the referendum to try and find some kind of progressive Brexit by bringing together people. And you can see why they had that position being member driven. However, they were heavily critiqued both within the network and, and, and by others for taking this position and not as an organization trying to transform their members' interests and trying to shift those members to see the benefits of staying in the EU. So that's one very specific example. And so that member-driven model, essentially what I, I, I outline in the book is that it could be captured by the majority. And the majority, even if they're progressives, because it's you know, that's loosely the, the broad value spectrum that we're talking about, are progressives that are signing up. Still, there's a lot of variation in what progressives might want on any issue, whether it be trade, migration, climate, or Brexit. And so as a response, um, many of the organizations over time started to identify that they as staff needed to try and shift their preferences of their members and or even look more actively for more progressive members. Um, so GetUp did this a lot around refugee rights issues. And be, you know, I'm sure you may have, may have interviewed some of the people involved in, in those campaigns because refugee rights, as you know, in Australia aren't, you know, it was bipartisan support for... Yeah, we're not very good at that, actually, <laughs> refugee rights. We're better in Australia at refugee no rights, unfortunately. But but it's true, GetUp and Shen and other leaders in the organisation at the time have played an extraordinary role in, in trying to make a difference. And I chart in the book some of the work that Shen specifically did. I was lucky enough to be in the car when she was driving and trying to do organize the Let Them Stay campaign. I was seeing that in live before it had gone into the public domain and the role that GetUp was trying to play in, in coordinating that and fostering collaboration across the refugee sector, but also being very aware that they needed to have some long-term objectives. This wasn't just a rapid response campaign of, okay, let them stay. We've got, you know, this, uh, these people, you know, whatever it was, 30, 40 babies in, 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 in hospital right now, and that's the campaign. It was part of a long strategic vision, which was in GetUp strategic plan, to get everyone out of Manus and Nauru. And obviously GetUp is not the only organization working in this space, but the point I'm trying to make is that it had a long-term objective and it was looking for opportunities to collaborate with others in the refugee sector, to do rapid response, mobilizing, whereas a group like uh, 38 degrees at the same time, as I chronicle in the book, 
campaigned rapid response on refugees, but as soon as members lost interest, it dropped the campaign. They didn't have a long-term strategic objective, and rather their funding was coming from saving the bees. And I have this example where they pivoted from a refugee rights campaign to saving bees, which there is reasons to be doing this, right? There is a big problem with the bee population. It's not as brutal as, as you just, it sounds terrible to, you know, like it's such a brutal example. Of course, we need bees too, we, we, but we don't need to not support refugees just to support bees. <laughs> right. And, and part of it was because of the funding model, right? That the bees were bringing in more money for the organization because the organization had a purely member-driven campaign staff didn't see that they needed to play a role in trying to convince their members of why refugee campaigning might still be important in the aftermath of uh, September 2015 when there were an increased number of refugees trying to enter Europe. So to me, this the, the model is about if you're purely member-driven, you might be very reactive and responsive, but you may not be able to work on minority rights issues. You may not actually transform members' preferences, whereas the staff-driven model is saying, There may be some issues that our members don't care about right now, but maybe over time we can shift them. And this is what happened in Poland. Actually, Demokratia tried to campaign on the rights of the judiciary. Now, that doesn't sound very sexy. Let's defend the the judges. But actually, that became a really important issue. And when they started working on it, their members weren't that convinced. They were like, why would we help these 60-plus-something-year-old judges sitting on benches and throughout Poland? But actually, it became a real big mobilizing moment across the country and actually Demokratia saw that role. So I think that's what um, became of real interest to me as I, as I followed the network, how the model evolved. Yeah, yeah, because what I hear, hear in the model is that in playing that stewardship model, playing a long, making a decision about longer-term campaigns, it's about almost building a stronger relationship with the membership. So rather than just being member-driven, members want to move this way, we do that, members want to move that way, we, we do that, we sort of jump to the direction. The sense is, is that this is a two-way relationship between the sort of staff of the organisation and allies of the organisation and the membership where there's a sense at which they're relating to each other over time. That's exactly right. And I think just to add to that, there has been some debates about the strengths of the model at mass mobilizations, but perhaps the weakness at organizing, the deeper organizing. And that the model is very good at kind of getting out lots of people on the streets or in tweets or online, but that trying, they're all, all these organizations, I would say, have experimented with or have desire to experiment with more forms of deeper organizing. And I think that's an open question of when and how they can do that. Mm, that's a good question. We're going to have to ha- come we'll come back to that one because that how to intersect and to be able to use different forms of people power is such a powerful but often really challenging dynamic, you know, uh, no matter what it is in this case for, for mobilizers to be able to organize. It's such a cultural difference to be able to hold those two together can be really can be really difficult. So, you know, I want to come back with my sort of final reflective question for you, Nina, is, is just, just, you know, you did do this amazing research about this extraordinary network of organisations in the context of thinking about international social movements and international forms of change. You know, we're in an environment where we've got climate change, refugee rights, these things don't have borders, and we do need uh, capacity to be able to act at the, at the international scale. And then we've got this movement that you've studied for so long across cross national digital movements that are coordinated together in a network. What, what, what 
does this space teach us about what lessons do we learn about what what can work for international campaigns on international issues? Yeah, thanks for asking that. So one part of the book answers that very question by looking at the different ways this network has collaborated transnationally. And, And the headline message is that all of the groups get up, move on, are campaigning on transnational issues that spill across borders, right? They're campaigning, like you said, on trade, on refugees. In fact, in one set of data I collect, almost half, about 40% of their campaigns are related very distinctly to something international. But the way they do it isn't through focusing on an international institution or actor. So they're not going to the UN, whether it be in Geneva or the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change Summits or the WTO or the World Bank. They're not targeting the institutions, they're targeting their national decision makers. So the key message that from from this group of, of advocacy organizations is that power is in the nation state. So where they have the most leverage is to mobilize domestic citizens, so citizens in Australia, to put pressure on the Australian government or Germans on the German government. And that's their distinct theory of change and power analysis, if you like, is to say, maybe there's others who are going out and, you know, walking through the halls of the UN and Geneva and New York and doing the insider lobbying. And, you know, they're they're not discrediting that that doesn't have a role. But the way that this model works is, is mobilizing people to try and get elected officials to shift their positions. And I think there's a lot of strength in that model because, any international agreement, whether it be the climate agreement or refugee rights agreements, depend on national governments signing up to them and then implementing them. We've also got to remember, you know, this is the thing with the Paris Agreement. We, we have a Paris Agreement, but now we have to see it implemented. So I think that's the headline. The second point that I would just make quite clearly is that digital technology has enabled, in my view, new forms of distributed campaigning that is transnational. And the best example is in the climate movement. When we think of Fridays for Future and their global marches of the students' movement, they're happening on the same time, the same day, the same call to, you know, listen to the science, take action on climate change, but have different national targets. So here, while we might see nationally-based campaigns, they're part of a global movement. And I think that's a really fascinating evolution and they're enabled to be part of a global movement because you can go and you know put up on an events map where your local uh, march is happening and it might be in Sydney it might be in Melbourne it might be in Wellington or Berlin or a small town and you know Romania or Uganda or India and the very fact that anyone anywhere can set up a march and be part of this global movement but they're really in my view mostly targeting national decision makers they're not demanding the UNFCCC to change so in a way, what my, the sort of closure of my book is to say, well, you know, a lot of issues are spilling across borders and digital technology gives you lots of opportunities to collaborate transnationally. Power is still in the nation state. So you can use digital technologies in a savvy way to be part of global movements, but the actual theory of change in terms of power analysis is still focusing on the state. Oh, yes, that's what I like. You know, it's like old tools an old like a recognition of how power hasn't necessarily shifted massively. It's still held by the nation state, but these new tools allow for that old power to be targeted in new ways. And that's what's so, in- I mean, look, that is, so, uh, you know, call out to, to people who are interested in this. There's a whole book full of treasures that cover this extraordinary 
network that should be read by people who are interested in understanding how this kind of power can work. Look, Nina, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. It's been really interesting to talk with you and uh, good luck with the next piece of research. <laughs> Keen to find out your further and deeper investigations into the questions of resources and, and so forth that you're doing in this space. Thanks so much, Amanda. It was a real delight talking with you. No worries. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all of our episodes. This is Series 7, so there's plenty to be inspired by in our back catalogue. Our digital producer at Changemakers is Lachlan Hodson. Our audio producer is Jules Booker. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast. We're on Twitter at Changemakers99. I'm on Twitter at Amanda Tats with two Ts. Check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all of our stories. And don't forget to take a look at the video content from our organising school if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.